Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Love is a game. You distinguish yourself by not calling her. Four days he waits to call me. Easy to start. That's a very nice hat you're wearing, and I don't mean that in an Eddie Haskell kind of way. Hard to finish. Linda. Bye, Steve. I left my blue t-shirt at If you can't find love, you settle for sex. I'm on the bed right now. I'm wearing something really outrageous. I think you got the wrong number, lady, but I'll be right over. In the absence of sex, you go for companionship. Uh, you want to get some dinner? Busy. Um, how about some lunch? Have a lunch. Coffee? Water? How about some water? Soon you're just happy to have a friend. You know, in the parallel universe, we're probably a scorching couple. But in this one, neighbors. Of course, you can't sleep with friends. Singles. You know I see other people still. You don't fool me. Bridget Fonda. We made the connection, and when you make the connection, it's like chemistry takes care of itself. I mean, it makes its own decisions, you know? Campbell Scott. I was just uh, nowhere near your neighborhood. Kira Sedgwick. Did I overreact? Do you know who this is? Sheila Kelly. Could you seat me next to a single guy? I've got a special feeling about you. Jim True. And Matt Dillon. Janet, you rock my world. Singles. If I make this basket, that's fate telling me to call him. Wait, did no basket mean call him or don't call him? Never mind. Directed by Cameron Crowe. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Singles from 1992. The studio was Warner Brothers. Release date was September 18, 1992, with the running time of 99 minutes. The rating PG-13, the budget of $9 million, and the box office took in $18.4 million, making it the 68th ranked movie of 1992. Rotten Tomatoes gives the movie 79% fresh from 52 reviews. Their critics' consensus is smart, funny, and engagingly scruffy. Singles is a queer-eyed look at modern romance that doubles as a credible grunge-era time capsule. Roger Ebert at the time gave it 3 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. Singles tells the story of a loosely-knit band of friends and neighbors who live in an apartment building in Seattle and dream of love. They are all in their 20s and reasonably attractive and not particularly desperate, but they share a plight everyone can identify with the difficulty of finding a match between someone you like and someone who likes you. It always seems to work that if one half of the equation is right, the other is wrong. Singles was written and directed by Cameron Crowe, who has explored this territory before. He wrote the screenplay for Fast Times at Ridgemont High, not my favorite movie, and then wrote and directed Say Anything in 1989, which was one of the wisest and most touching movies about teenagers I have ever seen. Now, moving on to the 20-somethings, he has adopted a casual sketch style, where scenes are separated by blackouts, and the point of each episode is to show some facet of human nature, usually one that makes us squirm. The movie will challenge some audiences simply because it's not a 1-2-3 progression of character and plot. 
There is no problem at the beginning and no solution at the end. The film is about a life process that is, by its very nature, inconclusive. The search for happiness. Crow's insights into the material include one particular perception. In your 20s, you tend to spend more time putting yourself on the map than worrying about anyone else's happiness. Look at the earnestness in which the Scott character promotes his idea for a Seattle rapid transit system. Does he believe in trains? Well, only to a degree. What he really believes in are his trains. Singles is not a great cutting-edge movie, and parts of it may be too whimsical and disorganized for audiences raised on cause-and-effect plots. But I found myself smiling a lot during the movie, sometimes with amusement, sometimes with recognition. It's easy to like these characters and care about them. And that's the end of Ebert's review. For most folks, including myself, what is remembered most about singles is the soundtrack and the awesome cameos from those same bands in the film. But the movie always entertained me, even though it was always overshadowed by the soundtrack and being labeled as the film to feature the so-called grunge movement early on. Now, don't get me wrong, that is definitely still the draw, and I love seeing a young Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden featured prominently, but the film is actually better than you probably remember. All right, let's get into the main cast. You have Bridget Fonda, who plays Janet Livermore. Sort of like the Barrymores, the name of Fonda is part of Hollywood folklore. Bridget is the daughter of Peter Fonda. And the acting lineage between the great Henry Fonda, then to Jane Fonda, and Peter Fonda, and finally with Bridget. Bridget has been married to musician and composer Danny Elfman since 2003. If you didn't know, Elfman was the frontman of the great band Oingo Boingo in the 1980s before becoming a well-regarded film score composer. Now, by singles, Fonda was still early on in her career. She had a small role in The Godfather Part 3 and the movie Doc Hollywood, which we covered on this podcast. But her first major role was in the suspense thriller Single White Female with Jennifer Jason Leigh. Campbell Scott plays Steve Dunn. This is definitely the first film I saw Scott in, and I don't recall... seeing him in any other film, but he does have a long body of work on film and television, and he's still working today. His film break was a year prior to singles, co-starring with Julia Roberts in the movie Dying Young. Kira Sedgwick plays Linda Powell. Like Fonda, the name Sedgwick was famous due to Kira's first cousin, Edie, who was an actress and fashion model, who died at the age of 28 due to a drug overdose. Now, Kira started her career at 16 on a soap opera called Another World, and would appear in smaller roles until singles. And then she would that was the start of her getting bigger and bigger roles. And if you didn't know, Kira has been married to fellow actor Kevin Bacon since 1988. Matt Dillon plays Cliff Poncier. Dillon was definitely the biggest name in this film, and his scenes are the most memorable as well. Now, Dillon started as a teen actor in the late 1970s and would be a staple throughout the 80s. Some memorable films prior to singles include Over the Edge, Little Darlings, My Bodyguard, Tex... The Outsiders, Rumblefish, The Flamingo Kid, and Drugstore Cowboy. The director and screenwriter, Cameron Crowe. With the exception of Matt Dillon, Crowe would be the biggest name attached to this film at the time. If you've seen the movie Elvis Famous, that was probably based on the early years of Crowe's life, going on the road as a teenager writing for rock magazines. Film-wise, he started by writing the book and screenplay for the iconic Fast Times at Ridgemont High, just like Ebert said. He would also write the screenplay for The Wildlife in 1984 with Chris Penn and Eric Stoltz. And then he struck gold again writing and directing Say Anything with John Cusack. Okay, let's get into the movie. The film begins with a montage of Seattle, and the song Dyslexic Heart is playing by Paul Westerberg. We then meet Glinda, played by Kira Sedgwick. 
who is happy to finally have her own place without roommates and a garage to park her car in. Well, unfortunately, a car breaks down in the city and she gets a ride to the repair shop from an engineering student from Spain she meets while looking at puppies in the window of a pet store. The charming Spaniard is named Luis, and he draws a quick Picasso-esque sketch while waiting with Linda at the repair place and writes his phone number on the back. This leads to a montage of them hanging around Seattle. Linda is finally happy she's met a good guy after being so frustrated by so many duds for a long time. However, the catch is that Luis's visa runs out in two days. Their last night together, Louise gives Linda a ring as a symbol of their future together when he returns back to Seattle in two months. In a funny gesture, though it means something to Linda, she gives Louise her garage door opener. You remember, that's a big deal to her. Louise leaves for Spain, and Linda discusses her future with her friend Ruth. If you were married... Would we still go out dancing? We will always go out dancing! What? We will always go out dancing! State of our mentors is a force that down the creatures. Sins still plays and preaches but the heaven and the That's the song State and Love and Trust from Pearl Jam playing at the club. Linda sees Louise at the bar with another woman. She's been scammed from the beginning. She ends up crying on Ruth's shoulder outside of the club. But we quickly cut to the next scene and Linda is at the shop trying to pie a new garage door opener. And this is kind of the fun quirkiness of singles and the kind of vignette aspect of this film that Ebert mentioned. We then meet Steve Campbell Scott who has recently broke up with his girlfriend and is also fed up with the dating scene. So maybe it was never simple. I'll tell you this. For the next three years, I am going to concentrate on work. Work is the only thing I have complete control over. Work. I gotta go. Next, we meet Janet, played by Bridget Fonda, who works at a coffee shop. Yes, the days before people who worked at coffee shops were just called waiters or waitresses before being labeled as baristas. Anyway, we meet Janet and her musician boyfriend, Cliff, played by Matt Dillon. I get so much inspiration from my boyfriend. He's a musician. put out an independent album last month he's a really good artist too he's like a renaissance man i'm so glad he moved into my building
Well, your machine wasn't on, and um, I was supposed to see you Saturday, but right. I don't. So I just thought I'd come by and say hi. <laughs> hi. Hey. So, um, how about this weekend? Oh, this weekend, we're really busy. We got we got that show, right? Yeah, we got that show. We got these guys are coming up from L.A. It's, Great. It's going to be really rocking. Bye, Cliff. Great. Well, so, um, come over after. Deal. Look, Janet, you know I see other people still, right? And you do know that, don't you? You don't fool me. Janet, I cannot be fooling you less. Hey, Cliff, you gotta move your truck, man. Cliff, I know what you're thinking. We made the connection, and when you make the connection, it's like chemistry takes care of itself. I mean, it makes its own decisions, you know? So you gotta just sit back and enjoy it. Because you know when it's real, and this is real, and we just don't even have to discuss it. Janet, you're spazzing off on me. Hey, Cliff, while we're young? <sighs> so, um, I'll see you Saturday then, and, uh... I hope you use your speakers. What can I say, man? She's crazy about me. Matt Dillon is so great in his role as a starving musician who works four other jobs, and everyone knows he doesn't have what it takes to be in a band, except for Janet, of course. Again, the fun part about this film for music fans are all the cameos from the bands from the early 90s music scene. For example, Cliff's band is called Citizen Dick and is essentially the members of Pearl Jam. Now, from the last clip, you heard Jeff Emmett telling Cliff to move his van, and Stone Gosser was the guy saying hello to Janet when she arrived, and Eddie Vedder is the drummer. That night, Steve and his buddy Dave Bailey decide to go to a local club to check out some of the bands. We get a great cameo from Eric Stoltz playing a street mime when the guys get lost trying to find the club. Webster and 24th, it should be here. Let's ask this clown where the club is. Hey, man. Where's the soda? I get it. You're a mime. Mime the address. Well, give me a ride and I'll show you. Where's the soda? Our car broke down. Yeah. I'll tell you about love. Love disappears, baby. Every time I've been broke, Babe has been off like a prom dress. Maybe it's the girls you choose. Hey, maybe I've been hurt. Maybe I've been dumb. Does anybody know where this place is? Hey, what do I look like, a Thomas Brothers guide? You know, you really shouldn't speak. Yes. Hey, where do you guys work? I'm a maitre d'. Department wow. of Transportation. He's working on a gridlock problem. Thank God. I build airplanes. Woo, woo, woo. The guys, the mime, and the couple whose car broke down do finally arrive at the club and were treated to Alice in Chains performing during their absolute prime. Steve also meets Linda during their performance. And we hear the deep brilliance of Cliff giving an interview about his band.
my friend and I have this long-running argument, and here it is. He says that when you come to a place like this, you, you can't just be yourself, you have to have an act. So anyway, I, I saw you standing there, so I thought, A, I, I could just leave you alone, B, I could come up with an act, or C, I could just be myself. I chose C. What do you think? I think that A, you have an act. Uh -huh. And that B, not having an act is your act. Thank you. Talking here with Cliff Poncier. Cliff, any comments on the Seattle sound and Citizen Dick's place in it? Well, I don't like to reduce us just to, as being part of the Seattle sound. I like to think of us expanding more. Like, we're huge in Europe right now. I mean, we've got records. Uh, a big record just broke in Belgium. Into the blood again. Same old trip it was bad. Now, a song like Touch Me, I'm Dick is about what? Well, I think Touch Me, I'm Dick, in essence, speaks for itself. You know, I think that's... You know, that's basically what the song is um, about. It's about, you know, I, I think a lot of people might think it's actually about, you know, my name is Dick and, you, you know, you can touch me, but I, I think, you know, it can be seen either way. Uh, hey, excuse me. Hello. Hi. Hey, do you guys want to meet up later? Where are you going? Anywhere you're going. Anywhere you're going. We're going home. We're going home. Do you have a... See ya. Anywhere you're going. Always get the numbers, Steve. Tonight I got 20 numbers. Now I realize this is a movie, but there's absolutely no way Steve would be able to hold a conversation for even a second with Linda while Alice in Chains is performing. The noise would be absolutely deafening. But yes, I know. Suspend disbelief. Also, Cameron Crowe is the reporter interviewing Cliff Poncier. Now, all is not lost for Steve. In another chance meeting, while he and David peruse a newsstand outside the club, they run into Linda, and Steve and Linda chat while Muddy Waters plays in the background. Steve works as a city planner looking to fix the city's traffic problems. He decides the next morning, when he gets to his office, to give Linda a call to see if she'd like to have lunch. They meet for lunch, and there's a really funny scene where you see a very young Paul Giamatti making out with a woman across from Steve and Linda. That night, Linda hangs out with Steve at his apartment, and they definitely connect and talk for hours. Steve still has his vinyl collection. Now remember, at the time, CDs had completely taken over, and he has a Seattle Supersonics poster of Xavier McDaniel, who will come into play later in this film, on his wall. If you're not an NBA fan, I will let you know that the Supersonics are now the Oklahoma City Thunder. In a funny twist of fate, before Linda drives off, the two say goodnight, and they have a brief pause, and you believe that they're going to kiss. Instead, Steve pulls out his garage door opener and offers it to Linda so she can park in the underground garage of his building next time she comes over. Linda freezes and quickly leaves to Steve's bewilderment. Linda goes back to her place to get ready for bed, and then someone rings her doorbell. It's Steve, who charmingly says, I was just nowhere near your neighborhood. <laughs> this makes Linda smile, and then they have the very passionate kiss that we expected earlier. Things get hot and heavy, but with everything in this film, humor is always present. As the two roll around in their underwear, Linda's friend Andy calls and leaves a message on her answering machine about his thoughts about Steve, as they've already discussed her feelings towards him. 
And while in the throes of passion, we get the return of Xavier McDaniel into the film. What are you thinking right now? Yeah, I just go out and just play basketball, good hard-nosed basketball. Things happen throughout the course of the game. It's nothing you can do. Uh, I don't go out to look to say I'm going to beat this guy up or beat that guy up. Anything else, X? Yes, Steve, don't come yet. We then go back to Janet, who can't stop thinking about Quiff. While, of course, Quiff never thinks about Janet when she's away from him. And all she wants to do is make Quiff fall for her. So much so that she contemplates getting breast implants because all he has is pictures of busty women throughout his apartment. Janet bluntly asks if her breasts are too small for Quiff, and in typical Quiff fashion replies with, Sometimes. <laughs> this is where we get another great cameo as we meet Bill Pullman playing a plastic surgeon who meets with Janet about getting implants. And this is a really funny scene as the doctor shows Janet on his computer a graphic of what size implants would work for her body frame. And Janet keeps going bigger and bigger while the doctor keeps making them smaller so she doesn't topple over or will still be able to go jogging. <laughs> we go back to Linda and Steve who are both trying to figure out the best way to not screw up their burgeoning relationship. And of course, their overthinking will do exactly that. This guy plays no games. That's great. Yeah. I've got to play this one perfectly. Just go with it, Steve. What do your instincts tell you to do? Not to listen to you guys. There you go. I'm telling you, she doesn't want you tugging at her bra strap. She wants mystery. She wants drama. She wants excitement. I know women. I don't want drama. I don't want excitement. I just, I want to trust him. Should I trust him? Yeah. Not all guys are like Louise. You're right. You're right. Steve is different. Steve, you just follow your instincts. I mean, don't treat this like casual sex. Casual sex doesn't even exist anymore. It's lethal, it's over. What are you thinking? If I had a personal conversation with God, I would ask him to create this girl. My chest hurts. Uh-oh. You didn't do anything like leave a note, did you? No, I left my blue t-shirt by mistake. There oh, are no mistakes. No. What? No. What? what is that? What does that mean? Janet, give me the phone. <clears throat> I am going to call my new semi-girlfriend. You don't realize you're going to scare her off. She's beautiful. Anyone would call her. You distinguish yourself by not calling her. Yep. P.S. That's how you get her. No, no, no. Bailey, you don't understand. Am I the only one that remembers your last three girlfriends? Uh, you're right. I gotta let this one breathe. Yes. Okay, you're concerned about dioxins. Let me give you Greenpeace's number. No, that's set up building the 34 So? How'd it go? I got the boat. Trip to Alaska set. Oh, great, Linda. That is great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Steve on two. Four days he waits to call me. So what do I tell him? Tell him I went out for groceries. Okay. She went out for groceries. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. 
He's coming right over. What do you mean, nothing? Nothing is wrong, really. I, I thought we connected here. Steve, this is a really small office. Is this because I didn't call? I don't remember. Did you call? Vegetable. I don't know why you're being like this. I like you, and, and it would be cool meeting you. I'll call you, and you call me. Look, I'm sorry if I blew it by not calling you. You don't owe me anything. You don't have to call me. Is this about your old boyfriend, the one who always calls? And he doesn't always call. Probably has a ponytail, right? He does not have a ponytail. It's Mr. Sensitive Ponytail Man. He is not Mr. Sensitive Ponytail Man. You're scared of getting close to me. You don't know me well enough to make that observation. I think I do. No, you don't. Look, let's not play games. Games? If I was playing games, I would have waited a week to call you. <sighs> what I mean is... I gotta work, Steve. Linda. Bye, Steve. I left my blue t-shirt at... The great caveat to the end of the last scene is that Janet is meticulously cleaning her toilet with Steve's blue shirt that he left at her place. Another part of the little single circle of friends is Debbie Hunt, who also lives in Steve's apartment complex. And this is where we get another great cameo with Tim Burton, who will film a video for a video dating service. Hi. Uh, this is for Expect the Best, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I brought some clippings, some possible looks for my video. Mm, here we have the Edie Sedgwick. No. Ooh. Pseudo Bridget Bardot. Or mm. we jet on over to Spain for the depressed millionaires. Mm -hmm. And I love these earrings that nobody loves but me. Truth. I will create your new look. I will have men dying at your feet. Ten bucks extra, and Brian will shoot your video. Twenty. <clears throat> he doesn't even know me. Debbie, he is only like the next Martin Scorsese. Okay. Okay. I'm in your hands. I am Debbie Hunt. If you want to see how I look, rewind and freeze frame. And I am not about. 
I crave responsibility, respectability, and love. My goals are serenity and knowledge and men who can understand me. Oh, no druggies, please. I'm fairly intense, and I'm an advertising exec at KRWE TV. That's me. Come to where the flavor is. Come to Debbie Country. It's the cheesiest video you could imagine as Debbie's looking like George Reeves in the 1950s Superman show flying over a green screen of the Space Needle in Seattle. <laughs> Next, we get the official cameo from Pearl Jam as Citizen Dick has a band meeting. It should be late. It should be like the six or seven. They want, they want me to come out. But sounds right. I mean, Doghouse as an encore, man. Jesus. Can't start off with that. What's the point of like making those people like clap so we come out? You don't get it, to you, man. That's all agree with quick. Hey, check this out, man. A review of our record. Whoa, snap! Read it out loud, man. Once again, when the shirtless Cliff Ponsier starts to sing. Wait a minute, man. I don't, I don't want to hear anything negative. Other than that, he was ably backed by Stone and Jeff and drummer Eddie Vedder. I mean, that's good. That's a, that's a good review. A compliment for us is a compliment for you. No, man. Just negative energy just makes me stronger. We will not retreat. This band is unstoppable. This weekend, we rock Portland. Yeah! <laughs> what the brief review in the paper said about Cliff that the guys didn't read aloud was, when the shirtless Cliff Poncier begins singing, you know what you're in for. More pompous, dick-swinging swill from a man who has haunted the local scene for much too long. You wish that Cliff would move to another town, like Minneapolis, or Los Angeles, or New York, a town where he could disappear into the masses and not stand out like the relentless, mediocre talent that he is. <laughs> what a great review. While Cliff doesn't dwell on the negative energy, Janet is going ahead with her breast implants. Steve, being Janet's friend, sits with her in the doctor's waiting room. Tell me from a girl's point of view, what do you, what do you really want from a guy? Well, when I first moved out here from Tucson, huh? I wanted a guy with looks, security, caring, someone with their own place, someone who said, bless you, or tight when I sneezed, you know? And um, someone who liked the same things as me, but not exactly, and someone who loves me. Total order. Yeah, I scaled it down a little. Well, what is it now? Someone who says tight" when I sneeze. Although, I prefer bless you. It's nicer. The doctor is actually a good guy and actually talks Janet out of getting the implants. Partly because he likes her, but he really believes she doesn't need them and her boyfriend should just like her for who she is. As everyone watching this movie realizes, Janet would be better off with the doctor than Cliff. More on that later in the episode. 
In the meantime, Linda has time to think and realizes she overreacted and calls Steve, which leads to a montage of them dating over a few weeks. And then the bombshell. Linda is late. You know, like, pregnancy late. So something serious in the film means we must immediately follow it up with something funny and we get a cameo from Jeremy Piven while Steve attempts to buy a pregnancy test, or five, at the pharmacy. Steve Dunn. Yeah. Doug Hughley. Mr. Deegan's class. Doug, hi. What is up, you old goat? How you doing, man? Okay, man. I haven't seen you in a long time. You know how much homework I missed because of you? I loved your radio show. That was the best. Thanks, man. You know what? We're throwing down tonight over on Aloha Street. Yeah, we've got two bands. It's going to be insane. Would you get up and do a little Wheels of Steel? Oh, no, no. Are you sure? Yeah. You're the only man I know who can mix up Elvis Costello and Public Enemy. What's so funny about peace, 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 love and under peace, 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 death row? What does a brother understand? Peace, 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 understand peace, peace. You're the best, man. You are the king. You are the king. You gotta be there, man. You must be there. Of course, you may be busy. Now, Jeremy Piven in the last scene mentions that he knows Steve from Mr. Deegan's class. Well, Mr. Deegan is the teacher mentioned in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Of course, Cameron Crowe wrote. After a pregnancy test determines that Janet is indeed pregnant, the two go off to their jobs, though their mind is obviously on other things. So we follow the pattern of serious to funny. We see the men that were matched to Debbie's dating video. All right, all right, you guys. These are the men who want me. Let's put on more than just a good body. Feelings, man. I have a lot of tender feelings. But you're just waiting for the right woman. It's hard to, to get it across when you look like this, obviously. Well, my name is Spiro. I'm an artist. As you can see, my paintings is displayed behind me. Um, I'm the kind of person that's really meticulous in appearance and also very precise. In fact, if two people really believe in each other, that love can go all the way around the world and through each other's soul. But love is a very delicate thing. In fact, if you're both not very, very careful in nurturing, that love can... I'm looking for a woman who is unpredictable. Someone who is complex. Someone who is willing to experiment. I like the way the world looks from a bicycle. And I guess I'm just looking for someone who feels the same way I do about a bicycle. Am I coming off too intense? Because I can be intensely laid back, too. I am very... Very, very lonely. Oh, definitely the bicycle guy. The bicycle guy? He's like your soulmate. Guy with the bicycle. Nice outfit. Is he late? Yeah. Yeah, but I expect the best. Yeah. So why did you pick this sea merchant? The first avenue one is way happening. You mean there's another sea merchant? 
So hilariously, Debbie races on her bike to the other restaurant only to find out that he left a message with the hostess that he went to her apartment after getting her address from the dating service. Now Debbie must race home on her bike. And this scene is exactly why films before new technology were so great. This whole ordeal would be likely non-existent today because of cell phones. How boring, right? Also, while going home, Debbie's bike gets a flat, and while she finally arrives back at her place, completely worn out and dripping in sweat, the guy she picked is hitting it off with Debbie's roommate, Pam. Pam and Debbie argue outside while he listens, and basically Debbie sells the rights to the guy for 80 bucks, and Pam does the dishes for a month. Back to Linda and Steve, they initially decide to have the baby and get married, though that quickly sours when they go to a movie theater and are listening to a kid scream at the top of their lungs. <laughs> Again, funny, then serious is the theme. Right after the theater scenes, Linda and Steve are driving from the movies and are in a major car accident when a truck runs a red light and smashes into their car. Linda is hurt and taken to the hospital, and we find out that she suffered a miscarriage. After a few weeks of recuperating, Linda decides it's best if she goes on a work trip to Alaska. She'll be gone for a month, leaving her relationship with Steve in limbo. Well, that was heavy, so let's lighten the mood with Quiff and his buddy, Chris Cornell from Soundgarden, who also performs live later in the film. Hey, Janet. Come here, I got a present for you. Give me another chance. One, two minutes. Come on. Hey. This would be great. Oh. You're going to love me for this. Hmm. I installed your new stereo. Oh. Great. I think this is a good time to stop and not give away the rest of the film. There's about 20 minutes left. So what happens to Linda when she returns from her trip? Or does she even return? And what happens to Janet Quiff and the rest of the gang? And we also get a great cameo from Tom Skerritt. Well, most will only remember the soundtrack for its legacy in the early 90s grunge movement. This is a good film, even if it's just for the nostalgia of the era. Regardless, it's enjoyable to watch even without the music. And if you get the Blu-ray, you get the full live performances from Alice in Chains, who perform It Ain't Like That, and Wood, and Soundgarden, who perform Birth Ritual. Alright, let's talk about the deleted scenes, and there are lots. You have one called 18 Units. It's a quick, funny scene where we meet our main cast from the apartment. Next is called Underground. Steve and Dave enter the club while Alice in Chains performs. It's a funny scene where Dave asks the ticket stamp guy if the stamp comes off easy, to which the guy yells at him, No! <laughs> 
mime club fight, just like it sounds. Eric Stoltz, the mime, gets into a fight with a guy who pushes him while Allison Chains plays. It's actually really funny as they wrestle to the ground before shaking hands. I hate the mime. The mime doesn't stop talking during Allison Chains' performance about he'll only date blondes even though he likes brunettes. And finally, after the ridiculous conversation, Steve says that he hates the mime. <laughs> what would the king do? Steve debates with Dave if he should call Linda. What would Elvis do? Well, he wouldn't call. Janet comes over and says Steve should call and ignore the bell curve of four days like Dave claims. Cliff eventually shows up hungry, wanting food, and thinking that the new issue of Esquire sitting on the ta coffee table is a penthouse because it's the same thickness. <laughs> Water date redo. Steve's co-workers listen in to his call to Linda asking her for lunch and giving advice while he's on the phone. The Java Stop, a quick scene that shows Cliff and Janet flirting at the coffee shop while working. Rock the House, Janet buys Cliff a large painting of Julio Iglesias for his apartment. After that, Janet wants to have sex with Cliff, though he says he's not interested and he's tired. Then Janet asks if her breasts are too small for him, and he says no. But he's really just disinterested her in the moment. The Ballad of Janet and Dr. Jeff. After Dr. Jeff's consultation with Janet... We see him at a bar talking to a stranger about him meeting Janet. Dr. Jeff then talks Janet out of the implants, and we then see them taking a romantic bath together as Jeff says he wants to do everything for her that Cliff would never do. We then see Janet waiting on the entry of her apartment steps, waiting for Dr. Jeff to pick her up for the weekend, while Debbie gives her dating advice, which is terrible, by the way, telling her to pick up rich men at the racquetball court. So Dr. Jeff stands her up, and a scene in the film that was used to make you think that Janet is wanting to call Cliff is really just part of this affair between Janet and Jeff. Janet then spends the next day waiting for Jeff to call, but all she gets is phone surveys and dating service and, and phone sex calls and party lines, which are actually really funny. Dr. Jeff does finally show up to Janet's apartment to say he's not ready for a relationship and doesn't know about those new bands like Mother Love Garden and Bone Garden. <laughs> I actually wish these scenes stayed in the film. They're playing our record in Belgium. Steve runs in the cliff while throwing away trash at the apartment. 12-day theory. During the scene where Steve visits Linda at her office after not calling for four days, Steve says that he'll leave as she wishes, but she'll know it's a mistake within 12 days because that's when your true feelings come out. Linda isn't impressed with this theory. The oyster is dead. Steve and Dave are eating lunch at a seafood place, and Dave claims in France, where, where he loves... That they won't eat dead oysters, they'd send it back. So he squeezes lemon on the oyster and so it scrunches up and it isn't dead. The male bathroom contains all secrets. At the coffee shop, Debbie talks about her last relationship to Janet, Steve, Dave, and Cliff as she investigates the guy's bathroom and determines that he's seeing someone else from what she finds. Steve simply says, you scare me. Am I really plastic? Debbie and Pam are negotiating the guy who likes Pam that Debbie was supposed to meet. Debbie discovers that people say she's plastic behind her back because she talks incessantly about herself. Pam says that she'd get more guys if she didn't act so desperate, and Debbie loses it. If you could pay my phone bill. Linda is leaving for a trip to Alaska and asks Ruth to pay her phone bill while her ferry takes off. Bailey's checkup. David waits nervously at a doctor's office while after discovering a spot on his penis. He drops trowel while the older female doctor ins inspects his spot. Dave goes into a long story about the girl he met and how they watched the movie, beaches, and other funny things until the doctor stops him mid-story and asks him if his hands are in his pockets often. 
Dave says yes, since he's a waiter, and the doctor says the spot is likely from an irritation from his pants pocket. Dave is relieved, and the doctor gives him advice that there's no such thing as good queen sex and to protect himself. Dave says thank you and shakes her hand, to which he gives her a $5 bill. The doctor deadpans that you don't need to tip your doctor, Mr. Bailey. (laughs) It's a great scene. Bailey's French Club Fantasy. This is a scene that would have expanded Dave's character a bit about his dream woman that he meets at a French club doing performance art. She sits at Dave's table and then smokes, and they make pseudo-intellectual small talk that they think is very deep. It's a stupid scene that should have been cut out. Advice to a lovelorn Steve. Jeff goes to Linda's place after she gets back to Alaska, but instead meets Debbie Mazur, who was completely cut out of this film, who has moved into the place and rants about receiving all her junk mail. Jeff then walks by a newsstand where he met Linda and looks at every magazine cover while each cover model talks to him based on the subject of the magazine. This is actually a very funny scene. There are also a few other deleted scenes, but they would give away the final plot, and you can see them all on the Blu-ray. So, all right, some fun facts. Cameron Crowe was interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine at the time about why Nirvana wasn't in the film. And this is his quote. I think the only people who were part of it originally and then pulled out were Nirvana for a number of reasons. Part of it was maybe not wanting to be part of the crowd. And then maybe the other part was that they had been getting hit on by everyone at that point. But I heard later that Kurt and Courtney snuck into the premiere that somebody let them in through the exit door at the back of the theater and that they came in and watched it. I always thought that it was pretty great that that night, Kurt Cobain was also in the room. The next question was, was there a particular song of his that you intended to use? And Cameron Crowe says, I really liked Imodium, and I wanted to use that. That was the one that I thought belonged in the movie. We were working towards it, and I think I might have even sent them a video cassette when Kurt was in Hawaii. I remember that. There was a time when we were just trying to figure out which of the songs would work, and then I found this cassette... The other day in a box of stuff from singles when we were putting together the expanded album together and it says never mind early mixes. So we were on track to have Nirvana in the movie too. And I love that he saw the movie at the first possible moment. So most of Matt Dillon's wardrobe in the movie actually belonged to Pearl Jam bassist Jeff Ament. Also Dillon was originally offered the part of Steve Dunn but he turned it down. Cameron Crowe originally wrote the screenplay in 1984 and the film was supposed to take place in Phoenix, Arizona. However, after the death of Andrew Wood, who of course was in Mother Love Bone, and the Seattle scene began to take off in the late 80s and early 90s, he switched the location to Seattle. Johnny Depp turned down the role of Steve because he was uncomfortable saying, I love you on screen. (laughs) A proposed alternate title for the film was Come As You Are, named after the song by Nirvana. Ironically, Jennifer Jason Leigh was originally cast as Linda but dropped out. That would have put Lee and Fonda together again after Single White Female. Jodie Foster and Mary Stuart Masterson were also considered for the role of Linda Powell. All right, due to the crackdown of the RIAA on podcasts using music that's already readily available on YouTube, I had to pull all of my great past soundtrack episodes that I had. However, I still have all the original interviews, and we can tack that on at the end of this episode with the great guest, Keith Rochford. This was originally episode 107, and we discussed track by track, the single soundtrack. So why don't I do that now, and I'll be back next week for yet another random movie from a DVD collection. All right, we're back for another soundtrack episode, but this time we're not going to go with one of our regular guests. We're going to go with a fan who actually enjoys our podcast. I've never met him before, but I've talked to him a little bit online, and he is on the Rock and Metal Combat uh, Podcast Facebook page which is just a blast. So if, you, if you're ever into Ralph and Ian, you got to be on the Facebook page too. But 
Uh, I was talking to Keith Rochford about singles, and and we had mentioned, I think we had talked about it in, I think, the chat room of of Wadzilla's uh, radio show on a Saturday, and and it had been brought up, and and nobody wanted to review this with me, but I knew Keith might want to, so I'm so happy to have you on, Keith. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. And yeah, it was in the chat room. I think somebody made some kind of comment about one of the songs on there. And I think my comment back was Citizen Dick. And I, you were one of the few people that caught it. it That's like right. Singles. And <laughs> yeah. And this and this brings up a great thing. To, I, I, I didn't tell you, but we're currently recording one of your ideas, which is the best fake movie bands. And so hopefully that will be released soon. And uh, that's definitely from you. And so, you, you know, you're all over the damn good movie memories now. Oh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. That's cool. So, so how did you, did you see the movie first of, for singles or did you actually get by the soundtrack before you actually saw the movie? Uh, it's so long ago. I want to say I got the, I saw the movie right before I got the soundtrack. A uh, bunch of friends and I went and just saw the movie and we were just kind of like, meh, whatever. But the music really got to me. So since it was obviously in that transition phase from the We'll call it the hate, the hated hair metal days right. into the the grunge period. To me, it was an easy transition. To it was all just heavy rock to me, so it didn't matter whether it was from L.A. or Seattle. But wasn't too keen on the movie at the time, but the soundtrack I loved. Yeah, and you definitely bring up a good point. This is one of those movie soundtracks, kind of like Flashdance and Footloose, and even Eddie and the Cruisers, where the soundtrack definitely had a bigger impact than the movie itself. And um, I, I know I don't know about you, but I love Cameron Crowe movies, and he's perfect when when it comes to you know he just has a knack for for getting these these great musicians and, and the right music at the right time, you know, like with Say Anything and and things like that. So, it, what would be your favorite uh, Cameron Crowe movie? That that's probably the easiest thing to have asked of me. It's uh, almost famous. Oh, nice, nice. There's another great soundtrack. Yeah, exactly. And just he seems to pick not only great music for it, but music that fits what he's trying to put across. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's interesting because you you brought it up like singles is a total snapshot in time where, you know, the Seattle rock scene is really starting to take off. And I know people like to call it grunge, but it's really just a different side of hard rock, you know. And uh, this soundtrack was incredibly popular. I mean, it sold over two million albums. And considering the movie made eighteen million on a budget of nine million, I wouldn't call it a bust, but I think definitely the soundtrack resonates more with people as opposed to the as opposed to the movie. Because I you know, I talked to people like, have you seen singles? And they, I just kind of got this blank stare. <laughs> so um, but then I ask about certain songs on the soundtrack, they're oh yeah, yeah, I know that song. So I, I don't think yeah. it's a yeah. Yeah, I think it's it ranks right up there with probably like reality bites where the, the soundtrack tends to overshadow and similar concept too. Oh, totally. I absolutely agree. So let's just get right into this and we'll, we'll start with the first song and uh, it is Wood from Alice in Chains. How do you feel about this one? Oh my God, this this song is amazing. I've always loved this song. Uh, probably the main reason why I bought the CD to begin with mm-hmm. uh, because at that point, Facelift, Facelift was already released. They had toured on it. They were in the making of Dirt, which was going to be released later in the year. So yep. this was like the first new Alice in Chains that we would get. And uh, to me, just the harmonies on it, the groove that they have in there, and just the overall vibe, the way Cantrell and, and Staley just blended together for that song is just, it's stellar to me. 
Oh, totally, totally. And I think Dirt came out, if I was doing my research correct, it came out three months after this song was released. And uh, yeah, it was a great precursor. Kind of like what Stone Temple Pilots did with Big Empty on the Crow soundtrack. Uh, you got a taste of what was coming up with uh, their album, which would have been Purple. And so were you already into, uh, were you a big fan of Facelift before this? I was a huge fan of Facelift. I was lucky enough to see them in a very small, like, dive bar. Nice. First touring on it, but that held maybe 300 people. Mm -hmm. So it was one of those places where it was either a band on the upswing of their career or the downswing. So to put it in perspective, Alice in Chains in, like, 90-ish, 91, Uh and Peter Chris in 90, 91. So two totally different. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, my God, Kiss, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Oh, my God, Kiss. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is definitely the most well-known song on the soundtrack, and it would also be part, you know, of that amazing Dirt album, which I think most people, most fans feel that's their best album, though I I do love uh, Facelift. And it's sort of interesting that this song is the first on the soundtrack, but it's the last on Dirt. So I don't know if that was done on purpose, but... um, yeah, I just remember my friends and I being super excited about hearing you, Alice in Chains, and this song, We Were Not Let Down. This is actually one of my favorite Alice in Chains songs. And because like you said, it's just, uh, it, it kind of encapsulate, encapsulates all that's awesome about the band. It was written solely by Jerry Cantrell, and you got the dual vocal harmonies, which are just, you know, they're haunting, and, and uh, you know, Lane then starts to take over after the, that initial uh, harmony. And the intro bass line is like, pretty iconic i mean it's right up there with like peace cells and uh and things like that right when you hear that beginning you know you know what what you're gonna hear and uh i love that control he it's like a simple but perfect guitar solo yeah i mean it's it's everything packed into a relatively short song and uh, i never get tired of it all right so let's go into the next song and this is breath from pearl jam how do you feel about this one this song is it's to me on first listen it reminded me so much of 10 for a couple different parts of it like the verses reminded me of black but then when they got into the chorus it reminded me of alive Mm -hmm. so i could see why it was even though it was recorded in between 10 and verses it was kind of like an outtake from one of those sessions why it never made a record because it was just too similar sounding but then upon repeated listens especially lately i I got into it more especially the feeling behind it and the meaning behind the lyrics uh like one of the lines that he says in there is if I knew what it was, I would take your, I'm sorry, if I knew where it was, I would take you there. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of this song for Pearl Jam was, it was just them getting across the point of living life and taking advantage of all these different things. And there's a recurring theme in a lot of these songs. And that's what I meant by Cameron Crowe saying that he picks certain music to fit what he's trying to get across. And this one did it really well. I wouldn't say it's as good as black or alive, but it's like the, the tail end of the 10 sessions, but it's a good track. Definitely, and I you totally nailed it with Alive because the the guitar solo which kind of fades it out at the end totally sounds like Alive. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know about you, but I think Ten is like a hard rock masterpiece. I, you know, it's not for just grunge and alternative, but but for rock in general. And uh, for me, this is the era of the band that was kind of untouchable. And I really enjoy Versus. I like Vitology. Um, this could easily, as you said, made the cut for 10. And I think it would have been one of the better song, better songs on verses. And so breath was an outtake, uh, from the 10 session that started as a, like an instrumental demo from stone Gossard. 
and I guess it was called Doobie E, and then Eddie Vedder later came in and put the lyrics on it, uh, you can actually hear the demo version. It's called Breath and Scream, and it, it, I don't know if you got the, the 10 reissue, which was from 2009, um, but if you get that, then you can, you can actually hear this demo, and uh, the version you hear on singles is actually a re-recording of that demo, and it's, it's funny. So I, I, you know this, but the, their original band name was Mookie Blaylock, and uh, yes. Mookie Blaylock was a basketball player at the time. And uh, it's funny. So we were watching TV here at work and the Red Sox were on. And one of uh, our guests that are, that's on all the time, Samantha, saw Mookie Betts. And she's laughing at his name. And I'm like, well, do you, do you remember Mookie Blaylock? And she's like, no, I don't know who that name is. And, and then told her about Pearl Jam. And <laughs> that would be their original name. And it's a really funny name. But they would have gotten sued if uh, they'd gone with Mookie Blaylock. So... Um, yeah, I think think yeah. they got one of those cease and desists before they went too far too far with that name. Exactly, and what's interesting is then like Stone Temple Pilots. I mean, there's kind of a connection there, but they were they wanted to be Mighty Joe Young. They were going to get sued, I think, because of a blues player that was named Mighty Joe Young. Not necessarily the the movie, but the the blues player. So I always thought that was funny. Um, but yeah, like you said, this song just has a great groove to it, and uh, the guitar solo from Mike McCready is just awesome, and. Uh, the cool thing about McCready is, you know, he was a huge 70s rock guy. He loves UFO, like absolutely adores Michael Schenker. And uh, I think this solo really kind of brings back that 70s vibe. And that's why a lot of people that are into grunge but not into, like, you know, classic hard rock, I don't get it because these guys are influenced by those guys. Yeah, I've never understood it either. And to me, like you said, Tent just stands up as a classic rock album. There's no Seattle sound to it. It's just a straight-up hard rock record that – has stood the test of time since it was released. It's to me, it's their best album, and it just kind of trails off after there. I mean, it's it's amazing what they were able to get all in that one first shot. It's and to think of what you know, unfortunately with Andrew Wood passing and Pearl Jam being started, you know, it it was amazing that they were able to kind of come back from that and do so well that they did. Absolutely, and uh, I don't know about you. So when did when did Pearl Jam kind of fade for you? Between Vitology and No Code, I yeah. never even bought No Code. Yeah, uh, Vitology, I can only get through with like about half of it. Mm-hmm. So it, was, it, it tapered off like ten. I listened to the whole way versus most of it. Mm-hmm. Vitology, about half, and then No Code came out. And I'm like, I'm not even going to waste my money on it. I know, and it's such a shame. It, it makes me think that Nirvana, if if Kurt Cobain was still alive today, would probably have had the similar fate. They wouldn't be legends. They kind of would have kind of, you know, nothing against Pearl Jam. They're still around. They're still, you know, a very vital band. Um, but they, they're they not legends like Nirvana, and that's simply just because Nirvana didn't have the staying power. Yeah, exactly. And, and even when you look at the top bands that have always come out of the Seattle scene when they start ranking them, to me, I always go the opposite of what other people say. My favorite has always been Alice in Chains. Mine too. Just because they've always had more interesting songs to me and different choices and all the different things that they can do. Then it went to Soundgarden. Pearl Jam and then Nirvana. Yeah, I totally agree. This song, uh, Breath, is playing when uh, Cliff and Jane, Jane is played by Bridget Fonda, they're at his place and she's asking, it's actually a funny scene, they're asking, she's asking if her breasts are too small because um, Cliff has all these like busty pinup models around like his apartment. So um, so that it's kind of a funny scene. So if you ever go back and watch that, that's when Breath is playing. All right, let's get into the next one. And you kind of referenced Soundgarden, but this one is strictly from Chris Cornell. And it's called Seasons. How do you feel about this one? 
uh, at the time listening to it, wasn't too sure what to make of it. You know, to me, the Seattle sound, just the heavy rock, I was more into that, not this acoustic thing with Chris Cornell. But now after, you know, with his passing and everything else that has happened throughout the years, this song just resonates even more. You got a glimpse in 92 of what he wanted to do later in his life, just mm-hmm. that his voice and the acoustic guitar is just this haunting vibe that just comes out of it um the meanings behind some of the things that he's saying of not being able to tell someone your true feelings just by saying you know i'm i lost the words i'll never find and i'm left behind a seasons roll on by if you take that and put it in perspective now with what happened to yeah. him it, it still gives me chills absolutely absolutely and, and of the so-called grunge singers of the early 90s I, by far the most gifted is chris cornell I mean, he, he had a range that is just unrivaled. And, and But for this song, for the most part, that isn't what it's about. Like, it's not about him showing his vocal gymnastics. That actually would come later in this album. Oh, but there, yes. Yeah. Much more definitely than later in this album. Yeah, but I totally agree with you. This track, to me, is more kind of like Zeppelin-esque, like Zeppelin 3. Um, it's got, like, you know, the acoustic laid-back vibe. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And it's funny that you say Zeppelin because that'll be coming up soon, too. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I kind of hear like Friends, like the, that, the Friends song on, on Zeppelin 3. It's an, it, I, to me, it's a nice change of pace from the first two rockers. And uh, it's a nice pacing of the album. And what's really interesting, so I was, I was reading up on this particular song, is that Chris Cornell actually took it upon himself to get into the mind of Matt Dillon's character, which is Cliff Poncier in the, in the band Citizen Dick. And so... He went and Chris Cornell actually recorded music for the fictional demo tape that was part of the character in the movie. And so after he leaves Citizen Dick, he, he, he kind of does a, a demo cassette. And so Chris Cornell took this in mind and basically wrote music towards it. And Seasons actually came out of it and just shows you how creative and talented he is. And uh, I don't know about you. Have you heard the new song that was released um, I think it was last week. It's called When Bad Does Good. He's going to release an album, or his, his, his wife is, of unreleased material, I guess, in November. I have not heard it, but I will definitely be picking it up. I, I mean, he was hit or miss for me on his solo career on yeah. certain things. Um, I, we won't even talk about the Timbaland album, but <laughs> the, the last thing that he did was amazing. The thing that I, I will always go to is his that live songbook. Yes. That, that just, like I said, him and an acoustic guitar, there was nothing that that you know he couldn't do to me in that point i mean yeah he had a soaring vocal ability and he could hit notes that some of us can't even imagine to hit yeah but for for me it was his songwriting and just the emotion that he gave put across on a lot of these songs all right let's get into the next part of the album and that is dyslexic heart from paul westerberg how do you feel about this one uh, I was not too familiar and still I'm not too familiar with either Paul Westerberg or The Replacements. That's about my knowledge of his musical career. But the song to me, after you listen to Seasons, it just adds this like uplifting, like happy melody in the point of the soundtrack. And for some reason, when I hear this song, all I picture is the couples in the movie in a movie montage doing all these goofy, fun things together, playing skee ball or going bowling. You know, your, your typical... I'm on a date movie montage to kind of bring the movie into a different perspective for just this moment. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is actually uh, played during the closing credits. It's funny because Cameron Crowe actually picked Paul Westerberg to do the intro and the outro music. So, um, yeah, with the exception of this album, I'm like you. I never got into or even explored the other works of Paul Westerberg. Now, I knew he was in The Replacements. I like some of their stuff. But I really, I, I wouldn't say I dislike this track. It just, it doesn't stand out like the, the rest of the album for me. 
Um, I don't skip the song, but again, it, it really doesn't do much for me either. So the na 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 nas go on a little bit too long at the end. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and but the funny thing about this is this is I don't know where Westerberg is from, but this is the first non-Seattle artist that he has on his soundtrack. That's a great point. I didn't even think about that, but you're totally right. Uh, I think he's from Minneapolis or something. Yeah, so there you go. So maybe, I don't know, maybe he's good buddies with Cameron Crowe or something. I don't know. <laughs> that or I think maybe his the, his songwriting just fit the what he was looking for. He has that, that tone and style, that kind of dry wit in his lyrics. Yeah, that makes total sense, and and obviously thought of, thought of him highly enough to put him, you know, either in the closing credits and 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 the opening credits. So that that says something. So maybe you guys like it. So we'll play it for you now. Okay, I'll take the next song, and uh, it's the Battle of Evermore, and and Keith kind of referenced it before. This is of course from the Mighty Led Zeppelin, but it's done by the Love Mongers. And if you don't know already, the Love Mongers is basically Heart. It's it's Anne and Nancy Wilson, and and they kind of did a. Um, I don't even. I guess you can call it a side project um, when they were on I, hiatus from Heart. To me, this is an absolutely perfect cover of a Led Zeppelin classic, which of course was on the uh, Led Zeppelin Four album. And, and this, if you didn't know already, Nancy was married to director Cameron Crowe. She was even in. I think they met on Fast Times at Ridgemont High, possibly, or maybe before that. But she's famously. In Fast Times at Richmond High, when she, I think she's in a Corvette, and Judge Reinhold's wearing his pirate outfit from the the restaurant he works in. He kind of makes eyes at her, and she's laughing at him. So um, she often collaborated, especially musically, with Cameron Crowe in most of his movies, and most famously, as Keith mentioned, in the band Stillwater and Almost Famous. So. I don't think anyone could do a more faithful and better rendition than this particular song, and everything that's wonderful about the original is totally included in this version. And to me, it's even more awesome that they're playing it live. I mean, that's how great Nancy Wilson, or sorry, Ann Wilson is voicing, but they, they definitely uh, harmonize really well. And uh, she just sounds brilliant on this album. And I'd love to hear a live album of them just doing Zeppelin, or at least a live performance. I think that'd be awesome. So how do you feel about this one? I knew the song when it came on, and then I'm like, wait, this isn't the Zeppelin one. And I'm looking, I'm like, love mongers. Then when I realized that it was Anne and Nancy Wilson, I'm like, okay, Seattle. I didn't know the connection at the time of Nancy Wilson being with Cameron Crowe, but then it made sense after I, I heard about that. But this cover is just top notch. I mean, the the way they, they blend together and do the backgrounds that Nancy's doing while Anne is hitting all those high notes. I mean, I, I'm almost daring to say it's close to being better than the original. I mean, especially the fact that they pull it off live. I mean, the lyrics have nothing to do with the movie theme because it's all based on like Lord of the Rings and all the, the goofiness that Plant was dealing with and talking about back in the 70s that right. none of us understood anyway. That's right. <laughs> but this this cover of the, of Battle of Evermore is just amazing. I mean, I, I, I would love, again, that's just like you said, to hear a full album of it and have it be like the, the, the tracks that you don't expect to hear. Totally. And, um, you know, what's interesting is and can still sing her ass off. I'm not sure Plant can hit these notes anymore. So it's almost like I'd rather hear her do Zeppelin than actually Zeppelin do Zeppelin at this point. Well, I think that's why he's doing that stuff with Alison Krauss and yeah. all the things that he wants to shy away from. And, you know, I don't blame him either. I wouldn't want to do it. You know, it's kind of like what Steve Perry's doing now. He's not going to try and touch the journey stuff. He's going to stay within his comfort zone and just show people that, hey, I'm still here and I can still sing. You know, I don't need to show off at that point. Right. And, it, you know, Ozzy always says it. You know, it's like if I if he had known back in the day that, 
you know, he couldn't hit those crazy Sabbath notes from the 70s, maybe he would have sang it a little differently. But, you know, that's why, you know, that stuff stands the test of time. And who, nobody thought, they'd, you know, rock bands would be touring in their 70s like they are now. So Exactly. Yeah. I didn't think they would be either. No, no, it's amazing. All right, let's get into the next song. And this is kind of a bittersweet song for, for many. And it's by Mother Love Bone and it's uh, Chloe Dancer, Crown of Thorns. How do you feel about this one? This one is my favorite track on the album. Yeah. Um, I, I knew the songs before because I actually did have the cassette copy of the EP Shine from Mother Love Bone. So I knew Mother Love Bone before Pearl Jam. Mm-hmm. Uh, my local record store guy is like, oh, you got to check this out. These guys are really cool. And I saw something like in a magazine, like a blurb on them. So I took a chance and bought the EP and I loved it and then got Apple, the first full album when it came out in like 90. So I was upset that Chloe Dancer wasn't part of Crown of, Crown of Thorns on Apple, but always had it on the Shine one. And the the mood that he just does with this ballad, and it just shows what what Andrew Wood could do. Who would, for those of the, the, that don't know, he was the singer and wrote a lot of the songs with Stone Gossard and Jeff. I think it's I don't know how to say the name Ament Ament. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he he was just an unbelievable talent that you know gave into his addictions and we lost way too soon. But this totally fit, fits this entire theme of the movie, the, the album about, you know, people just trying to figure out how they're going to get along with one another, but being too self absorbed in kind of their own world to actually let somebody else into their, their private thoughts mm-hmm. and just kind of, it's a, obviously about a breakup and how addiction got in the way of that, but the underlying theme of it just fits this whole movie and album just perfectly. Oh, totally. And you can't help but hear, anytime you, anytime I hear Mother Love Bone, I just, you can't help but think what could have been. Um, granted, you went ahead Pearl Jam, but this could have been, I don't know if you call it better because Ten's amazing, but this band was on the rise. And, and if, like you said, if it wasn't for his demons and his addictions, um, they could have been really something. And uh, yeah, definitely pick up Apple, which is their full length album. But if you want the combination of Apple and Shine, they have a self titled compilation that has everything on it. And, and definitely pick it up. It has this song as well. To me, this is Mother Love Bone's Stairway to Heaven. I mean, this is their epic. It's a really well-crafted song that should have made the band huge, actually. And there's just so many layers and textures. And the guitar work is so good in the middle part of the song that, you know, you just you just become, you know, in, enraptured with it. And so, um, again, listening to this song sometimes is frustrating for me because there should have been more music from them. And it just wasn't meant to be. But like you, this is definitely my favorite song on the album. If, if I go, bet- I usually go between this and Wood. Um, but yeah, it's amazing. And this is the song that's playing when Steve and Dave are trying to find the club that they want to go to. So yeah, do you have do you have anything more to say about this song? No, I, th- I think one of the things that you know, obviously, they are a little bit before their time or a little bit after their time, depending on your perspective, because they had that Seattle sound in the music, but Andrew Wood was that. Almost like that L.A. frontman. Yeah. Your mix of like nowadays, if you want to kind of relate him to the guy in Steel Panther look, but, you know, like a Vince Neil type frontman where he still went over the top on things. So he was like the rock star fronting a Seattle band. And if he had lived, I think it would have been it would have been a totally different kind of Seattle scene. It would have been a grunge scene. Because then it wouldn't have been, you know, staring at our shoes wearing flannels. They show that you can still have that that 
depth and that angst in the music, but you can still have a fun front man. It would have been a totally different scene, I think. Totally. Like he was probably more in line with, he liked bands like Faster Pussycat and LA Guns, obviously loved Aerosmith and, and the sleaze rock type bands. So yeah, it was a nice little blend of, you know, what would become grunge. Plus you still have that kind of that eighties glam scene, which to me would make them that total crossover appeal. That would have been really awesome. All right, let's go to the next song, and it's uh, from Soundgarden, and it's Birth Ritual. How do you feel about this one? Oh, Kim Thale's killer, killer riff mm-hmm. that just goes through that whole song. It definitely, a, it's got to be from the Bad Motor Finger time frame because of the fact of just the sound and the vocals that Chris Cornell does. He is in a range that I think it's one notch below just what only dogs can hear. <laughs> he, it's just, I can't believe the vocals that he's just giving out on this album on this song it's just amazing the way he just hits these notes and it's just a driving just beat you over the head riff that you can't help but just wish that Soundgarden would have stayed on that track because then they kind of veered into the the super unknown technically and went in a little different change of sound but that was always their thing they always were kind of changing things up anyway that's a great point and, and like you said you get the the vocal chops that Chris Cornell here he's hitting all sorts of high notes and um, what's really interesting is I, I don't know if you hear it too but like the intro riff is kind of like a precursor to new metal you know it kind of has like a choppiness a start you know stop start style but to me what sets the song apart of what eventually become new metal is Cornell's vocals uh, nobody can touch that and uh, Without the song, you know, without Cornell, the song would be pretty good. But to me, he turns it into an amazing track. Here's a case where I don't think it would have fit the vibe of Bad Motor Finger. So I think it's it's probably good. It, it's at, you know, it kind of stood on its own, you know, either on a soundtrack or a compilation album. So if you pick up like Echoes for Miles, which has all sorts of great stuff on it, um, you, you could hear this. Whereas like the two Pearl Jam tracks, I think fit could have easily fit really well on on one of the regular albums and so Soundgarden is actually performing this live in the movie when Steve decides to hit the club so any any more about this song no just the the whole again the the theme of the song for this still fits the the album again Mm -hmm. the saying you know living life now don't wait take advantage of you know what you have in front of you Okay, let's go to the next song, and it's another—it's the second Pearl Jam song, and it is State of Love and Trust. How do you feel about this one? Uh, this one, to me, is kind of the, the bridge from 10 into verses. This has more of a verses feel to me, uh, and it's it's okay. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool at times, but I, it, to me, it's just not like a throwaway track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely like Breath more than, more than this one. Um, but I think, I think for most buyers of the soundtrack— I think a lot of people, the two Pearl Jam songs, which were unreleased, were the major draw to buying this. And uh, yeah, I think this would have fit better probably on Versus, um, even though it was written during the the 10 sessions. And it was written by Vetter, uh, Mike McCready, and Jeff Ament. So um, yeah, I just, again, I just love this period of the band. And, um, you know, after Vitology, just like you, I, I really lost interest you know bands like pantera were kind of grabbing my my interest at the time they just seemed better and and more i don't know dangerous at the time (laughs) because i was in high school (laughs) exactly yeah so um the band actually would perform performs this song you know live often so um i guess it's kind of like a fan favorite and um you know i think it's a really good track and this is playing um at the club when linda who is uh, kira sedgwick 
And Debbie, who is Sheila Kelly, they're talking about guys. And then Linda sees one of the guys at the club who told her she was going or yeah, told her that he was going to Spain. And then obviously he wasn't in Spain. So um, this is what's playing there. All right, let's go into another Seattle band, and it is Mud Honey, and the song is Overblown. How do you feel about this? This one has a very kind of DIY garage band style sound with kind of like an Iggy Pop kind of vocal delivery to me. Mm -hmm. I'm not really into that sound so much, so it's probably the one that I would skip a lot of times. I get the sentiment behind it if you listen to the lyrics. I know Mud Honey was one of the bands early on in the scene, so I'm sure that's why they got one of the nods on the soundtrack. Yeah. And I know the story behind the song is kind of them, you know, just kind of saying, you know, the scene is blowing up and I don't know if we want to stay here and be taken into it or if we want to get away from it and, you know, kind of watched from, you know, the outside. But uh, this is probably one of those tracks that I would skip. Nothing against Mud Honey. It's just not a sound that I really ever got into. You and I are on the same page with all this. It's kind of scary. So, uh, my, you know, when I when I first heard this, um, I was never a huge Mud Honey fan, but I heard like kind of a, a, a Stooges vibe, just like you know Iggy Pop or MC Five. You know, those kind of garage rock bands uh, to my ears. Um, yeah, and it's it's kind of an interesting kind of left turn if you're expecting to hear kind of the quote-unquote grunge bands. So uh, maybe fans of Garage Rock really enjoy this one. I'm not sure this track would make me go out and seek more Mud Honey, but I, I dig it. I don't I don't skip it. Uh, I still think it's better than the you know the the Paul Westerberg songs, but um, yeah, it's not it doesn't stand out like the other ones. Um, there is a Pearl Jam connection with Mud Honey because Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament were actually in a band called Green River, which was before Mud Honey in the mid '80s, and then um, the Mud Honey singer Mark Arm and their guitarist Steve Turner were in all in a band together, and so and then of course uh, Gossard and Vent. Uh, a man and went to uh, form Mother Love Bone, and then once Green River disbanded, they formed Mud Honey. So there's always kind of this um, a lot of connections with a lot of the Seattle bands. You know, the one band going to another. So it's kind of kind of neat how everything kind of coincides. All right, so let's go to the next song, and it's yet another Paul Westerberg track, and it's Waiting for Someone. How do you feel about this one? I like this one a little bit more than Dyslexic Heart. Yes. Uh, similar kind of similar kind of theme in it again. You know, another relationship song. You know, he's obviously trying to figure out who he, if he's ever going to find love. And you can kind of see why Cameron Crowe would put this song in the movie. And if you said Dyslexic Heart closed the movie, this one opens the movie. It yep. makes perfect sense. You know, the whole movie is about who's going to find someone in their life that they're going to love. So they're quote unquote waiting for somebody. Uh, it's a it's a pretty cool pop rock song, but you know it's not the best one ever. But it's definitely better than Dyslexic Heart to me. Oh, I'm totally with you. The, if I did if I had to pick one, I think there always should have been one Paul Westerberg song. I would have picked this one. Uh, yeah, yeah. To me, it's it's more rocking than Dyslexic Heart, and um, and that always kind of fell flat with me, especially when it follows seasons. So you already kind of have like a laid back song, and then you you follow it up with another laid back song. I think it would have been better soundtrack wise to just maybe put this one after uh, seasons. But you know, the more I listened to this song, the more I liked it, which is which is good. I like that, and. Um, yeah, I, maybe it was spaced out better on the album as opposed to the other one. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think it, this one particularly fits well in the vibe of the album, the vibe of the movie. Um, 
And it's a nice kind of little sleeper track here. And so, I, and again, this is playing during the open credits. I guess Cameron Crowe loved this band, so that's why they got two songs. Um, yeah, so I, I would rather had maybe like another unreleased Alice in Chains song because they have uh, some good stuff before Facelift that's kind of more... I don't want, it's definitely not glam, but it's more kind of 80s hard rock um, that yeah, I really enjoy. Like their goofy phase. Yeah. Like kind of joking, uh, something with like cowboy. And I vaguely remember some of that, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's on their box set. There's one called Social Parasite, and um, there's some other great songs. So if you're a fan of Alice in Chains, just definitely check that out. It's not exactly the same, but if you're into like 80s hard rock, I, I think you'd dig it. Okay, so I will take the next one, and I'm going to get all sorts of hate mail on this one, but it is Jimi Hendrix, who of course is a legend, and he was from Seattle, and it's a song, May This Be Love, and I, I think a lot of people forget that Jimi Hendrix was actually a Seattle musician, because part of that was he got his big break in, the, in England, you know, in the UK, so, and not the US. And as much as it pains me to say this, this is definitely not one of my favorite Hendrix tracks. Now, uh, the character in the movie, Linda, uh, would disagree with me because she loves this song and references it uh, when it's playing on their stereo when they're kind of doing dishes in their house. But I, it's kind of sacrilege to say that you don't like a certain Hendrix song. But it's, it's like saying you don't like some Beatles stuff. But uh, I think this song is probably a grower for most people. And... You know, I maybe the most ardent Hendrix fan loves everything they do and that he does, but um, I, I do give credit to Cameron Crowe for picking a non-obvious Hendrix song. Like, we don't need to hear Purple Haze again or, um, you know, Foxy Ladies, stuff like that. Though I do love the way Foxy Ladies used in Wayne's World. But, um, yeah, this is definitely not my favorite Hendrix track. How do you feel about it? What you said earlier about just kind of really both of us being on point. Um, <laughs> I, I may add to your hate mail, though, because I've never really ever gotten Hendrix. Oh, wow. OK. And I, I grew up playing guitar mm -hmm. and, you know, Eddie Van Halen, Randy Rhodes, you know, all the guitar heroes I've loved. There's just something about his sound sometimes that I couldn't get into until probably in the last four years. I was able to kind of dig a little bit and scratch the surface on things. Listening to this song recently, though, I mean, it, it's not really great to me. I'm sure other people would obviously disagree with me, being that it's Hendrix and it's, you know, a classic. But yeah. the coolest thing that I heard on the song was just as you're listening to the outro guitar solo and the drums going, they keep switching channels left and right. Yes. And I thought that was really cool. Not being a Hendrix, you know, person I don't know much about. A lot of it. I watched a couple different things on YouTube about him and all that, but never really got into him except for, you know, the obvious songs. And I honestly prefer the softer side of him. So things like this or Little Wing, I'd rather listen to. I'd rather listen to him hit those those soulful, emotive notes as opposed to the feedback uh, frenzy that we get at times. Yeah, no, I'm totally we're totally on par here. I think we need to we need our own podcast. Here we go. <laughs> All right, might get kind of boring. I think, <laughs> I'm sure we can find something to hate. I, you know. <laughs> All right, let's go to the next song. It's from Screaming Trees, and it's Nearly Lost You. How do you feel about this one? So would Screaming Trees be like the one hit wonder of the Seattle scene? I think yeah, uh, probably. Because this song is really, really good. Yeah. And, and then the rest of their actual album that was released right around the same time as Dirt, 
pretty much fell right into the dirt. It yeah. didn't really do anything <laughs> for me. I saw them live with Allison Chains back on the the dirt tour and uh, just didn't do anything for me there. But this song is just awesome. Uh, I know Mark Lanigan's a great vocalist, and he comes off with this really cool Doors, Jim Morrison style vocal that you don't expect to get from the Seattle sound because you've got, you know, obviously Cornell with his acrobatics in the vocals and Staley with his his kind of, you know, off kilter harmonies with Cantrell. And just this, this Morrison vibe that this guy gives off is really cool. And I yeah. love this track. I just wish the rest of the, their actual album was like this. So this was perfect. I only had to listen to the one song from them. You're totally right because I, I listened to this song. I loved it. And I went to check out the rest of the album and I was like, ah, <laughs> this, they shot their wad on this one. Uh, yeah, I, who would have guessed that I would like a Screaming Tree song more than a Hendrix song? <laughs> and I did. And uh, so I can hear their people throwing their, their podcast listening device against the wall. But um, yeah, this is this is an awesome song. Keith nailed it. I, I, I find myself repeating this song as much as anything else on the album. And uh, I forgot how much I actually liked this track because I remember liking it as a teenager. But again, I haven't listened to the soundtrack in years. So this was this was a lot of fun to do. And uh, yeah, this is, um, you know, you know, as much as I like the song Wood from Alice in Chains, I think this, you know, the same strategy uh, was used for for Screaming Trees, like you said, and it just didn't do the same thing. They didn't have the buzz like Alice in Chains did. And uh, yeah, again, this was this was released on the soundtrack first before their um, their album, Sweet Oblivion, came out. So you guys can check out Sweet Oblivion, but we both agree this is probably the best song on the album, so enjoy this one. All right, we get into the very last song, and, and maybe this is where we disagree. I don't know. Let's, let's see if it takes 13 songs to get us to, to have a disagreement, but it's Smashing Pumpkins and it's Drown. All right, so I grew up in the south side of Chicago and have lived in the Chicago area my whole life, so... Um, you would think that I'd be a huge Pumpkins fan. I'm going to go against probably popular opinion. I am not a huge fan of them at all, <laughs> but I do like this song. Okay. I, I like certain songs from them, but I, I could never make it through an entire album. This song, though, I did like. Mm -hmm. um, it was a really cool just sound to it, and the, the vibe that you get off of this song with the, the verses of, of him just kind of losing the perfect person that you found for yourself. To me, it kind of just sums up the entire movie and the album. You know, you found that person, but you, you, it's like you held on too tight and they got away. Yeah. And that's kind of how Billy Corgan has always portrayed his life to be, too. So it really fit well with the record. And I think that, you know, again, I, I'm, you may get hate mail for it. Now, I apologize. <laughs> now, I've never been a big Pumpkins fan. I know Craig Smith on Paws and Sods is a huge fan. Uh -huh. but I mean, I I watched the Pumpkins get booed off stage in Chicago. Wow. Opening, opening for Guns N' Roses in 92 for the Usual Illusion Tour. Oh, geez. So they got booed off the stage. It was bad. <laughs> and, you know, in, in their hometown. So it was not a, not a pretty sight for them. And, and like I said, I can take them in bits and pieces, but not all the way on a whole album. So, again, this was perfect for me to be able to listen to the one. Yeah, it's funny because you and I, we didn't talk anything about this album beforehand, but we're so on par. I have a mixed relationship with the, the Smashing Pumpkins. I'd say like probably 25% of their stuff and the rest I could take it or leave it. And Drown to me is one of those kind of like those apathetic songs for me. I'm like, eh. And it's too long. Like it's over eight minutes long. And then towards the end, it starts to get, you get a lot of feedback. And I was like, eh, you know, after pretty much a stellar soundtrack album, this just kind of 
dies for me. And uh, maybe it's because the soundtrack is so good that uh, this song doesn't do it for me. But yeah, I, I don't know. This is actually kind of before um, they really became huge with like, you know, melancholy and the infinite sadness. I think it's even before Siamese Dream, too. So um, this is really in the early phase, like the Gish era. So um Interestingly enough, there was only two singles released from this album. One was Wood, and this was the other one. And I, I, I don't remember this song being that big. And I don't remember my friends really getting into Smashing Pumpkins until maybe Siamese Dream. But I, I don't think this song did it for them. And it doesn't do it for me. Uh, it's playing when Steve is actually hitting on Janet. And then she kind of blows him off. And then um, it kind of transitions the scene to where Cliff, which is Matt Dillon, uh, is kind of realizing that he should go back and try to get Janet. So you kind of nailed the the point of the song there. And uh, yeah, anything else on Smashing Pumpkins? No, I, I saw exactly what you said about the, the singles being Wood and, and this song, but I read something else that uh, Corgan was upset because this was supposed to be a single and they were having some radio play for it, but then... He said that um, they released Nearly Lost You as the single instead. So who knows? Maybe maybe Wiki's wrong. I don't yeah. know. Well, definitely Wiki is wrong a lot. So maybe that that, that would make sense. Because I remember hearing Nearly Lost You a lot more than this track. Okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe that is the case here. All right. So that's the end of the album. I, I guess they reissued this in 2017. I haven't heard any of the re- reissued tracks. Have you? I have not. I, I didn't even bother with it. Okay. So it looks like there's some Citizen Dick stuff on there. There's um, some more Chris Cornell stuff. And ironically, it was released, I think, the same week uh, Chris Cornell you know, died. So it was kind of interesting timing. Obviously, not set up on purpose. But I would say fans of that could definitely check that out, maybe on Spotify first to see if you like it. Um, but, yeah, I think the – you know, final thoughts on this. I think it's a, a definite period piece and it's amazing, you know, time of music where the transition from quote unquote hair metal into, you know, grunge, it really, this is the forefront of it. And if, if you're going to start with these bands, I think this is a nice little snapshot in time um, to listen to, you know, the bands of that era. How, how do you, looking back, does this the soundtrack hold up for you now as it did when you were a kid? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, like you said, this is a great sampler of the of the whole Seattle scene. So if you were trying to explain to somebody, so like when my daughter gets a little bit older and she wants to know what this whole Nirvana sound was, I can just hear, just listen to this this one CD. Yeah, idea. If you like it, then I can show you the rest of my CD collections after I explain to you what a CD is. <laughs> you know, uh, but you know, it, it stands the test of time. And to me, it actually would stand up as an, a standalone album too almost just the way it's kind of put together i think whoever put it together whether it be the producer or cameron crow just they did a, a stellar job of kind of just following that theme almost like a concept type thing totally and it's almost like a well everyone was playlists now and mixtapes you know it's kind of like the old school mixtape this is like your grunge mixtape so I'm going to do something fun here, and so I'm going to go through some of the bands that I think you really enjoy, and I want to know what your favorite album from them is. And let's start with Alice in Chains. So what would be your go-to Alice in Chains album? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm going to go Dirt just by the fact of Angry Chair mm-hmm. and Down in a Hole and Wood. Yeah, nice. How about Pearl Jam? Ten. 
I'm not even going to think about it. <laughs> nope, nope, no, nope, not even thinking. You and I are on the same page, I think, with Chris Cornell. I think definitely check out his his live acoustic album if you really want his solo stuff. Yeah, most definitely. That, that songbook album is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Favorite Led Zeppelin album? Oh, let me think. You know what? The one that still rings in my head is Zeppelin Two. You know, I love that one too. You know, a lot of people would probably pick. I know Ralph's is Physical Graffiti. That one's too long for me. There's yeah. just too many, too many left turns, and yeah, there's some great tracks, but there's also some things that I just got to skip through. I think a, a single disc would have been better, but I think if I remember right back in the day, at the first Zeppelin thing I ever got was the the cassette of Zeppelin Two. Mm-hmm. So that's probably why it's still my favorite. Yeah, and I see. I love the blues, and that's why I love the first two Zeppelin albums. So I, I got the first one first, and then. Zeppelin two next. And I just remembered this is, this is amazing. <laughs> like, you know, and I remember hearing a whole lot of love. And of course my dad had, had known that. And he's like, well, you know, that's muddy waters. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is Led Zeppelin. He's like, no, no, listen to the song. You need love. And then come back to me. And I did. And I'm like, holy shit, they ripped off muddy waters. <laughs> and, so, and then you come to realize the first two albums, there's a lot of, um, cover songs that they didn't call cover songs back then so it's kind of interesting there was, there was a lot of borrowing going on at oh, that yeah. point yes but look you can't deny i mean you argue that they made it better so <laughs> and they put the oh, wrong yeah. twist easily on it. easily yeah uh your favorite sound garden album bad motor finger okay yeah yeah i'm not gonna ask about the other one so let's just go through <laughs> but th- this has been awesome keith and uh i, I definitely want to have you on as much as possible not just for music but for we could do movie questions too so i might as well ask you because it's going to be coming out soon so we might as well get a teaser from you what is your favorite movie band if you want to give me your top five uh that's fine but your favorite fake movie band uh let's see off the top of my head was it Steel Dragon from Rockstar? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do. Even though it's cheesy as hell, I've always loved the movie. Yep. Um, Stillwater, almost famous. Mm-hmm. Eddie and the Cruisers. Yep. Everybody loves Spinal Tap. Absolutely. The first movie is great. Yep. And then the one that, that a lot of people may not know, I think the band is called Strange Fruit. Hmm. I've never heard of this. Where are they? Uh, it's from a movie called, uh, I think it's called Still Crazy. I forgot. It has. Uh, it's. It's. Let me think. The the guy that's in Love Actually, Bill. He's an older gentleman. It's about an older, like seventies band that gets back together and goes like on a a reunion tour in Europe. Okay. Is it Bill Nighy and, or something? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. He's in it, and um, I think the other guy's name is Jimmy Nail. Is one of the other ones, and it's basically them trying to reunite, and they don't have their key guitar player because he's in an insane asylum and they haven't heard from him in years. And it's, it's kind of reminiscent of the Pink Floyd story. Yes. But the, the main song that they do was I think written by Brian Adams. So it has that, that Brian Adams feel. Oh, nice. It's just a pretty cool movie. I think it was called still crazy. That's a good pick because nobody's picked that so far. Um, so that's good. That's great. I think you'll like this episode. We're, We're kind of across the board on it. Most of the picks I think mine are pretty straightforward. I throw in a few curveballs and I have some good honorable mentions, but definitely um, Steel Steel Dragons on my honorable mention just because I love Zach Wild. Um, and so it's funny to see him. It's probably the last time he actually shaved. Because uh, he's yes, basically had a the, yeah the pre fake biker look. That's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and the outtakes in that movie that that's like my favorite part of it when the credits are rolling. Yes. and they're going to do their live scene and they're ready to kick in. I think you 
they, as soon as the music kicks in, they start playing the Marky Mark song. That's right. <laughs> and, and, and the look on his face and seeing Jeff Pilsen just laughing hysterically is just classic to me. Well, it's funny. So you bring up a, another episode that's going to come out soon, uh, or it's an idea we have, and it's your favorite musician turned actor. And uh, Brian, who's on a lot, and he's like, well, can I choose Mark Wahlberg? <laughs> and I'm like, well, if you <laughs> use the term musician loosely, because I don't even think Mark Wahlberg likes to talk about the Funky Bunch. So. It could have been it could have been Vanilla Ice, because Cool as Ice was pretty good. That's know? oh yeah, well, in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles too. So <laughs> that is right. <laughs> <laughs> go Ninja, go Ninja, go. So yeah. <laughs> well, this has been awesome, Keith. Thank you so much, and uh, I hope you had a good time. And and this is a great. Uh, you know, preparation for you for the Rock and Metal Combat podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. This was a blast. Awesome. Thank you so much, Keith. All right, thanks. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on thatmetalstation.com. <laughs>